This is Dr. Jonathan Hansen. Welcome to the Warning Radio Program. Today you're going to hear a message by my friend, Reverend Norm Willis, who spoke to the staff of World Ministries International and their families. Let's begin. I'd like to talk to you tonight about the prodigal father. Before I think I'm being disrespectful of God, I'm not referring to God as being sinful as we normally refer to the prodigal. I'd like to expand a little bit on what the word prodigal really means. What I'd really like to talk about is having an Abba encounter with God. In 2004, I was diagnosed with tongue cancer. It's not a very good thing for a preacher to get, but I was diagnosed with tongue cancer, and the doctor said, you have tongue cancer, and he said, this could be career-ending. He said, but don't worry, you could always administrate. It's not a very good thing to tell a preacher he can administrate, you know. I went into surgery, and I remember waking up in the operating room, I woke up in the operating room, and of course, any of you ever been in an operating room, it's, you know, bright, stainless steel, and very sterile. The first thing I remember waking up was the presence of God. The second thing I remember was the pain. The pain was quickly there, but my point is, is in the midst of all that just transpired, I mean, having a piece of your tongue cut off, and the surgery, and all the rest of it, to in that moment have this encounter with God, in the operating room. I mean, of all places, you know, we expect it. It's going to be in the church. It's going to be on a mountaintop. It's going to be in some intimate place where the lights are low and the music plays softly. But to have this encounter with the presence of God in the sterility of a operating room, in the midst of a piece of your tongue being cut off, all the doctors and all the rest of it, and it was that immediate sense of, God, you're here. And that contrasted with Jacob when Jacob said, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. And at that moment, I said, God, I never want to miss an opportunity to experience your presence again. Now, I understand God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But I'm talking about that manifest presence. I'm talking about that encounter presence. I'm talking about that presence when you encounter God and its feelings. I know we're not supposed to want that. You know, we're supposed to be by faith, and it's not supposed to be about feelings. And I was in a meeting similar to this Tuesday night, and a guy was crying out, saying, man, it's been years since I've felt God. And all the good-meaning Christians, you know, say, oh, well, it's not about feelings, and it's about faith, and, you know, you shouldn't want feelings. And I'm thinking to myself, why wouldn't we want to feel him? I mean, he gave us emotions. You know, I mean, I think our emotions, our our feelings, I mean, I felt that, you know. And if he gave us feelings, what a better thing to use feelings for than to feel God. Now, I understand it shouldn't be foremost and we shouldn't build our whole life around the feelings. But to have that God encounter when you experience him, when you feel him, and you walk away with that sense of, I have just been loved on by God in the midst of the stuff, in the midst of the turmoil. I think we all know the story of the prodigal son. Get your Bibles. It's Luke chapter 15. I want to just bring out perhaps a different focus on that than perhaps what you've thought about before. 
There was a man who had two sons, verse 11, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. That's the best place we can be before God a place of acknowledging our need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's interesting that he was satisfied in being treated a slave when father still wanted to treat him as a son. And it's that whole base nature, that orphan nature that we have. We're so easily satisfied with reducing to the common denominator which God wants to elevate and give us the greatest. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So I want to draw our attention not so much to the prodigal son, but to the prodigal father. Prodigal has come to mean something sinful, but sinful was not the focus of its original meaning. The word prodigal is defined as extravagant. It's defined as lavish, abundant, and excessive. So using it in the negative sense, as we generally do with the son, we're saying that the son was extravagant in his sinfulness, he was lavish and that he squandered away his inheritance, and, and that was certainly true. But when we understand it in the positive sense in relationship to the father, it takes on an entirely different meaning. Just as the prodigal son was excessive in sin, so we see a prodigal father who's excessive in his love, a prodigal father who's extravagant in his acceptance. A prodigal father who is unconditional in his forgiveness. So while religion has a tendency to turn the focus to the negative, to the sinfulness of the son, I think the real story is the extravagance of the father. In seeing this story as the story of the prodigal father, we're reminded that we have a heavenly father who's lavish in his love toward us. I mean, not just a little doling out but someone who's lavish in his love, someone who is so mindful of the condition of his sons and daughters that even in the midst of a surgery in a surgery room, he would take the moment to manifest his presence and somehow pierce through all the drugs. I mean, we're talking morphine. That's not a mild drug, but somehow 
pierce through all his drugs to make sure that at that moment in time, I knew he was there with me. I can't even begin to express just what that did to my sense of belonging, my sense of acceptance. You know, reading that he's made us acceptable in the beloved, but in the moment feeling that acceptance. It went from a theological tenet to a very personal and practical experience, which made it incredible. He's a prodigal father who not only welcomes us back when we sin, but a father who celebrates our return. I don't know what your definition of father is. I think a lot of times we have a tendency to project our definition of our heavenly father on the basis of our earthly father's experience. My mom and dad were divorced when I was three. My dad left without saying goodbye. I ran out to say goodbye to him, fell, and he ran over me with the car as he was leaving. But I got saved, and you know, in the box of father, there was nothing there. There was just no experience. I was three. I don't remember anything prior, you know, no, no fishing trips and no taking me to the camp or, or anything like that. It was just an empty box, which on one level is good news because I didn't have anything negative. On the other hand, there wasn't anything positive there. But God had plenty of opportunity in these last 42 years to rewrite that definition and understand just how amazing and how extravagant, how non-religious, how unpretentious, how other than... He is when he defines himself rather than when we or other people define him. So the father that I've come to know is the father that defines himself rather than the father that experience defines. And that's the father that I want us to understand tonight and experience if you haven't experienced that definition of father. It was Renan Manning who said, God loves us as we are, not as we should be, because we'll never be as we should be. So again, to be in that place where we're experiencing love the way Father intended love to be experienced rather than the way we think love should be experienced. The unconditional love of God is what motivates us to change. In other words, love is the greatest motivator, even greater than fear. I think religion has a tendency to use fear as the motivation, you know, the fear of hell or the fear of judgment. But love is the ultimate motivation. Religion has given us a justice of retribution. And what I mean by that is the trap when we don't understand the fatherhood of God, the way the fatherhood of God is meant to be understood. We get into this performance mindset where we're trying to earn the love of God rather than receive the love of God. So the pattern goes like this. We sin, we come under conviction. And after coming under conviction, we receive punishment. And then we come into repentance, and then we have to do some type of penance. I grew up Catholic, so growing up Catholic, I had to go through the whole process, and then I had to you know, say three Hail Marys and a couple Our Fathers and an act of contrition. And, and if I did that, then I would be forgiven. But the Bible gives us a justice of restoration. And in a justice of restoration, we sin, we come under conviction. And then after conviction, we encounter this thing called the kindness of God. Not punishment, but the kindness of God. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So when I'm facing conviction, knowing that I deserve punishment, but Jesus took that punishment, and as a result of him taking that punishment, I get kindness. 
What does that do? It transforms me. I mean, I'm in such awe of the process, I'm transformed, and as a result of being transformed, I repent. Now, I would suggest most of us would reverse that. No, you repent, then you get transformed. And that's why most of us don't get to repentance, because we're trying to will ourselves into it. We're trying to somehow function in it. When the Bible says repentance is a gift, so they say to me, repent. I say, well, I'd like to repent, but I can't. No, I want you to repent. Well, I'd like to, but it's a gift. What if they said to me, receive the love, receive the kindness? I can do that. I can receive the kindness. And then in receiving the kindness, that kindness begins to work in me. It begins to transform me. And as I get transformed, all of a sudden I realize I've repented. It's an entirely different system of justice that God brings us in. It gets to the same result, it gets to that result of transformation where I'm walking in the transformed life, but it's an entirely different form of justice because I'm not going through this punishment that Jesus already took. Now, I say that to say when we understand the prodigal nature of God, we understand that a prodigal father doesn't have punishment. He put the punishment on his son already. And the punishment that he put on Jesus satisfied every demand that he had. Now, the older brother, he didn't understand that because the older brother was still stuck in a justice of retribution. And the older brother wanted the son punished. The older brother said, listen, the only way he's really going to change is if you punish him. And father is saying, no, the only way he's really going to change is if we celebrate his return. If we celebrate his return and he meets the kindness of God, it's that kindness that's going to lead him to repentance. Christianity is a love affair with the Trinity, not a moral code. Now, I understand that there's some things that we're not to do. There's some things that God forbids. But love is what prevents me from doing those things, not this moral code that I'm trying to live up to. When I love, I'll fulfill the moral code. In the book, The Cross and the Prodigal, Kenneth Bailey explains the cultural implications of the prodigal son. And he says, if a Jewish son was to squander his inheritance amongst the Gentiles, the community would perform a ceremony called the kazaza. The kazaza was a ceremony where they would break a large pot in front of the son, and then they would declare him cut off from the people. So they took the pot, they broke it, They would proclaim kazaza, and then everyone in the community understood that that son was cut off. Shun, don't have anything to do with him. He's squandered his inheritance. He's banished from the community. So Bailey submits that the reason the father ran out to meet the son was to get to him before the community could get to him. In other words, the father ran to accept the son before the community could come and reject the son. I don't know what that says to you, but I'm thinking, what an amazing father who was demonstrating to us in a very practical story his heart toward us. His heart that says, I understand the nature of people. The nature of people is to reject you when you don't do right. But my heart is to run out and meet you before they have opportunity to reject you. Now, if the truth be told... We don't need two brothers to experience the story of the prodigal son. 
in all of us is the propensity to be both the younger brother and the older son instead of the father. I mean, the moral of the story, be like father. The reality of the story, sometimes we're like the younger brother, sometimes we're like the older brother. Inherent in us is the propensity to either devalue what we have or judge those that do. Sometimes we're the younger brother devaluing, sometimes we're the older brother judging. So whether we relate to the prodigal son in the journey of familiarity or we relate to what I call the proud ego son, the journey of judgment. If trapped in the walls of either, freedom is found when we see the father's eyes. Now, I want us to make note that verse 20 says, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. The Holy Spirit words things quite intentionally. We all understand there's power in a look. Now, as I said, my dad left when I was three. My mom raised four kids by herself. My mom had a look. You know, I mean, think well, all our moms have a look, you know. And when that eyebrow rose, you know, it was like, okay, mom's got the look and it's time to shape up. I mean, she didn't have to say anything. She just had the look. And all us four kids, I mean, we were pretty strong kids, but all of us knew that when you got the look, it was time to shape up. Here we have the Father's look. The power to become all God intends comes from looking into Him as He's looking into us. In other words, He reads us, but we read Him. If we keep looking at disappointment, we'll be disappointed and soon depressed. But things change when we look away from disappointment and fix our eyes on the Father. Everything changes when we make the conscious choice to see life through the eyes of Father rather than through the eyes of self. It's perspective. It's going up and being able to view what's taking place through His eyes rather than through our own. Now, I'm telling you, when we do that, there's healing, there's change, there's growth, there's everything God intended it to be. The promise is all things work together for good. Amen? But have you ever experienced it not working together for good? I'm just saying, I don't want to contradict the Bible, but I've just had a few experiences in my life that I'm saying, Lord, I'd sure like to know where the good is because I don't see it. Now, we certainly understand it's those that are called according to the purpose of God and, and all that. So there is some conditions in this. But what I'm saying is the quicker we can get God's perspective the quicker we can be about the good rather than staying stuck in the limitation of our own seeing. It's at those moments we've got to get above and be able to see over. You know what the real etymology of an overseer was? Or ask it another way, what qualifies an overseer to be an overseer? Is an overseer can see over. Yeah, I mean, it's not real deep. It's just that most people in the community can't see over. Most people in the community get stuck. But there's someone who generally rises in the community that has the ability to see over, doesn't get stuck in the limitation of this view, sees over the circumstance into the eternal purpose of God, and then is able to give Father's perspective. And as a result of Father's perspective, everyone says, Wow, this person's amazing. Let's make him an overseer. All of us are meant to be overseers, 
I mean, not in a bishop sense or not in an apostolic sense, but certainly in the sense of overcoming, certainly in the sense of being able to see Father's perspective of the situation and not get stuck in the carnal view of the situation or the circumstance that we find ourselves in. So everything changes when we make that conscious choice to see life through Father's eyes. So when we see through the eyes of Father, we don't see failure as final. We see failure as an opportunity to rise. Now think about it. God is incredibly godlike, incredibly sovereign, sees the end from the beginning. So the Bible is written. He saw the end from the beginning. And in the midst of that, he made sure that this verse gets in saying, a righteous man falls seven times. And what does he or she do? Gets right back up again. Again, that's a loving father. That in the midst of all the things that could be said, that need to be said, he's saying, listen, I love my sons and daughters so much, I'm going to tell them ahead of time, you're going to fall seven times. And I think we understand the issue isn't seven. It's not like, you know, cat with nine lives, you only got seven, eight, you're out. Now, a righteous person falls, period. But when they do fall, they get right back up again. So when we see life from God's perspective, failure is not about something that's final. It's an opportunity to rise up. Remember years ago, the man named Tom Watson was vice president of IBM at the time. And he made a $2 million mistake, and he came into the CEO's office and gave his letter of resignation. And the CEO said, what's this? And he said, what's well, my resignation? I just made a $2 million mistake. And the CEO said, you think we're going to let you go after we spent $2 million educating you? It's a great perspective. You know, that's father's perspective. Father's perspective is every time we fail, it's education. That failure, when we're overcomers, when we're seeing with God's eyes, when we're seeing that circumstance through the lavish love of God, it's the opportunity to see over. When the father saw his son far off, he didn't look to condemn the son for his sin. He looked to enable the son for his return. In other words, father knew that the son had already beat himself up. He'd already lived with pigs. He'd already done what needed to be done. He'd already come to his senses. So he didn't have to bring out the whole reality of his sin and remind him of his sin. What he needed to do was enable him for his return and enable him for his future. In the Father's eyes, we see that God is about giving us the look of enablement. When we look to him, we're enabled to be like him. So we need to see our Father's eyes because of the perspective they bring. We need to see through Father's eyes because of the change they bring. We need to see through Father's eyes because of the healing they bring. We need to see through Father's eyes because of the capacity they bring. That's what all this stumbling and, and everything, it's about. It's about God giving us the ability to change, to see, for our capacity to be increased. So here's the take-home of what I want us to understand. We need our Father's eyes because those who see through the Father's eyes are enabled to love unconditionally, to trust undoubtedly, to serve untiredly, and to proceed unhesitantly. To be in a situation as life unfolds, that we can be the hands of God extended. 
to be able to love unconditionally and see through God's eyes. Just recently, I went through a very difficult situation, and for about a month and a half, I literally wondered if I was going to live. I'm not suicidal. I'm not suggesting I was going to take my life. I just meant I'm not sure I've got enough to live. I told my wife, I understand transitional breathing now. You know, I was in enough of the deliveries and, you know, and the coach is saying, okay, it's time to go into transition. All that. What's the big deal about breathing? I understand the big deal about breathing right now because it relieved pain. And I was waiting to meet my son, and I was in a coffee shop, and I sat in the corner of this coffee shop, and I remember thinking, I'm going to die. And there's not a person that knows it. I pulled up to the coffee shop in my Mercedes Benz, and I was very nicely dressed. I looked like I had everything together. Problem was, I thought I was going to die. And I sat in that corner and I thought, I just wish somebody would come up to me and say, Norm, it's going to be okay. I mean, I was desperate enough, I would have listened to a Jehovah's Witness. If a Mormon came up, I would have received it from a Mormon. You know what I'm saying? At that point in time, I did not care. I just needed to hear. And I say that to say, I wonder how many lives we pass on a daily basis that are the same way. Look like they have it all together. Look like they don't have a care in the world. Look like they got the world by the tail. And we may even see them and think, you know, I'd love to come up to them, but, you know, I'm sure they don't want to hear me. No, they're willing to hear anybody. They just need to hear the voice of unconditional love. They need to hear that voice reminding them that they can trust. They need to hear somebody encouraging them to proceed. You will get through this. There will be tomorrow. You do have a future. You do have a hope. There's still God's promise to prosper you. In other words, to just be the hands of a lavish, loving Father extended. So I'm here tonight just to remind you of his love, to remind you that the greatest gift we will ever receive in life is the gift of an Abba encounter. And for whatever reason, God has ordained to send me tonight just to remind you of his love, to remind you of how lavish he is, to remind you that there is a tomorrow, to remind you if you're struggling that you will get through, you are an overcomer, you can see through his eyes, you do have a future and a hope, he is here to love you, he is here to prosper, he's here to do all those things that he promised he would do from the beginning. He's here just because he loves you. You don't have to go through surgery to figure it out. You don't have to go through some life-changing experience or life-altering experience. You can know it right where you are, his extravagant, prodigal Father's love. Father, I thank you for who these are tonight. And Lord, I'm asking that in this moment that you would meet each one of them right where they are. Abba, manifest your love here tonight. But particularly that one that's wondering, Lord, do you really care? Are you really aware? Have you heard my cry? Lord, I pray just affirm that. Come and reveal the depth of your love, even as you ran out to meet the prodigal. Run out tonight to meet these here. Let that sense of celebration be theirs. May that personal reality of the celebration be ours here tonight as we sense you celebrating over us. 
Lord, anyone here tonight that's fallen and has convinced themselves that they shouldn't get up, they can't get up, remind them of their need to get up. Remind them of their need to not stay stuck in that place, but to rise up because you've made them righteous. So we loose the grace right now to rise up and apprehend the destiny that you've called, to rise up and apprehend your love. Thank you for being the loving God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Dr. Hansen. I hope you've enjoyed today's warning radio program with Reverend Norm Willis. I'll see you tomorrow.